It is Monday, March 17th, 2014, and this is episode 59 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and as usual tonight, I am joined by Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening and happy St. Patrick's Day, and I'm amazed you're still sober. Well, I'm working on that. All right, fair we're, enough. We're, we'll get there. But Did you, know. you uh, did you observe the traditional uh, you know, custom of flooding your office with snakes? No, I did not actually. Oh, you know, I, I'm starting to think that that is not as cust- you know customary as I thought because I got a lot of a lot of weird looks when I did that today. <laughs> it was just you. I think somebody played a trick on you. Could be. So uh, so anyway, um, you know this this uh, podcast episode is brought to you by uh, by well me and Andy <laughs> and and um, <laughs> our extensive list of sponsors of yeah us us. And uh, hopefully the new my, my significant investment in audio hardware is uh, is paying off dividends. Oh, that's true. This is our first show with a new and improved audio deck. Yeah, it's really fancy. There's all sorts of knobs, and I'm really intimidated. I, I bet. And you're just gonna fiddle with them through the, the entire show. Yep, <clears throat> I can make you very quiet too. Anyway. <laughs> The thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer, as usual. So, as we can jump in, the the first thing I have is a just a a bit of advice for all of those bad guys out there from uh, from my friend Bob. Um, he said that if you are running some kind of organized crime outfit out of a data center, you might not want to call and complain about jitter or lag or whatever, because, you know, that might result in, well, the data center sniffing your traffic and realizing what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's best not to call attention to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and, so there uh, you go. What, what sort of traffic did they, did they find? Uh, well, you know, voice over IP. Oh, and why was this criminal? Uh, well, so you know, I, I think we're all well familiar with, um, you know, the the myriad of phone scams from, you know, the the insurance scams to the tech support scams, right? Some some of these companies, uh, I, I use the term company loosely, operate pretty significant operations. And, uh, mm. and and I, I would say um, comprehensive from from what I heard from Bob. So you know awesome. they're they're kind of like one stop shops. They'll they'll do it all. They'll they'll take your money in in many different different forms. So good to know. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're you know, full service operations. You know, if Bob ever got on you know the wrong side of the law, he he's got a lot of good experience that he could uh, he could pull from. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, don't mess with Bob. All right, so let's get into stories tonight. We have a quite a number. The first one comes from ThreatPost, and it is a recap of the recent Pwn to Own 
contest from Cansec West that happened, I think, last week. And, you know, the, obviously Cansec West has a lot of things going on, but Ponda Own has become kind of the pinnacle of, of, uh, of that conference. And in this particular uh, year, they attacked a lot of browsers. And all of the major browsers were were successfully hacked and that's a you know that's pretty significant what's even more significant i think is that firefox was was uh, compromised four different times and in, in four different ways and uh, and i also learned in this article that opera is not considered a major browser yeah it doesn't have a ton of market share it had a little flash in the pan for a little while there but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, with the economics of it now, I'm wondering how often people are sitting on uh, zero days or O days, whatever the preferred you know terminology is these days to pronounce that. Uh, until you know something like Pwned Own runs or runs around because it's big, big money if you pop it in a, in a unique way that nobody else has done it before. Yeah, they didn't cover it in this article, but I think they uh, I think I read that they gave out eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, it's Total. big. I'll uh, I'll look it up as we're talking here. I know it's not it's not trivial. Um, and I believe Vupin took home four hundred thousand of that by themselves, wow. which is pretty good. From what I from what I hear from my friend Bob, though, that that is pretty insignificant compared to what they can get from some of their other customers. Sure. Yeah, Pwn to Own, sponsored by HP, uh, featured up to 1.085 million in prizes. Wow. So let me make sure this is a current story. Yes, March 13, 2014. Uh, I'm getting this from a CNET story. All hacking eyes on the prize money at Cansec West. Um, eight research teams earned 850000 with another 82500 going to charity uh, for Pwn for Fun over the two-day competition. Um, but you know what, what this, I think the takeaway is here is that you cannot assume ever, no matter how patched you are, that your tools aren't exploitable. Uh, Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely vital to patch and you should be patching, but there's always folks out there finding zero days, no matter how hard the manufacturers are trying to secure their code. Uh, at this point in time, they, they are just not able to. Yeah, and I think to to carry on to what you just said, and we all browsers tend to be like a a religious experience for people, and you know, people will, will obviously nobody likes Internet Explorer, but people will <laughs> uh, will claim uh, Firefox is better or Chrome is better or Safari is better, and you know the reality is it's kind of a it's kind of a trade off. You know, one year. Well, and it depends on how you measure it, right? Like some people can very subjectively uh, say, "Look how quickly Chrome is patched. Look how quickly you know this happens, and then this technology is in here." And you know, for a while there, Firefox was the only one that wasn't doing the latest and greatest versions of SSL 1.1 and 1.2, you know, built into the code directly. Was SSL right? Yeah. Anyway. There was some feature that they didn't have turned on that the other ones had turned on. Firefox finally turned it on recently. So it, it's such a moving target, especially with the rapid development cycle they've got going on right now. Um, you know, I'm a Firefox user, but I use Chrome as well. Occasionally I have to fire up IE if something is completely incompatible with, you know, normal stuff. But 
Yep. I just assume they all can be exploited. Um, there were a couple of, uh, of complimentary comments about, yeah, that I think it was the, was it Vupin was making the comment about how, how good uh, Chrome's sandbox is. So that's, you know, I guess that's good, although they still managed to get in, even though it's it's got a good sandbox. Uh, that's, you know, I, I think the one notable thing uh, I took away from this is, is Java didn't have any, uh, there weren't any prizes awarded for Java breaches this year, which is, I think, the first time I can remember. Yeah. I can't, I cannot believe Java was, I, I, I reject that. I, I understand that that is fact, but I sub, I reject reality and substitute my own. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, you know, I guess I, I guess you know if you're if you're a pen tester, you don't you don't want Java <laughs> to get fixed, right? I guess. Um. So the takeaways, like we said, nothing is ever nothing is ever safe ever ever. That's sorry. right. It sucks, but it, I'm sorry. That's right. All right, moving on. We have tar- more Target. This time it's a really, really long Bloomberg Business Week article. And I will save you six glorious, actually five glorious pages of ads. It's so long, it has four authors on the byline. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. It's excruciatingly long. But but the net of it is, and, and I suppose this has been out for a couple of days, so most people are probably familiar with this, but Target, about six months before the breach, started deploying FireEye. And in fact, they spent about $1.6 million on on FireEye and you know deploying FireEye. And in fact, FireEye triggered on the malware that was used, uh, allegedly, on uh, used in the exfiltration of their data on two separate occasions. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't configured to block and no one ever followed up on the alerts. Well, FireEye is is not easily blockable, right? It's not it's not like an IPS in, in you know, monitor-only mode, so... But, yeah. Yeah, it, it flagged it... Um, you know, we don't know the, exactly what it flagged it as, but, um, you know, it, it definitely flagged it. And a follow-up story is that Target admits it. They have confirmed this story. They said they investigated it and, and dismissed it. So um, from the story, it looks like they're monitoring folks in India, uh, flagged it, reported it back to corporate security in the States, and uh, that's where it just sort of uh, fell on the floor. It died a lonely death, and you know one one of the uh, one of the things in in the Bloomberg article is a quote uh, when when Bloomberg asked for comment, the CEO of Target came back with a quote that said uh, it said a bunch of things, but one of the one, one sentence of it was uh, see uh, when when questioned the CEO said Target passed the PCI audit in September of two thousand thirteen. So you know, basically, what do you want us to do? What more? What more do you want from us? We passed the right. PCI audit. Well, how many times have we said on this show, being, you know, PCI QSA passed does not equal security? Yeah, well, well I should I, say, you know, and that's such a black and white statement. I should say, does not equal the 
full level of possible risk mitigation for your environment. But but here's the reason I brought it up. And, and I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, you know, I think most people who have been in this industry for a while, are, you know, kind of intuitively accept that. But here you have the CEO of one of the largest retailers of the company of the in the country, uh, basically coming out and and expressing a a contrary opinion, and you know that's that's I think a, a very dangerous thing, and it kind of says that maybe we as security people aren't doing a really great job of educating our executives, or I don't you know I don't know if it's on us. Right, but how do you end up with the CEO of Target in a national print saying something like that when it's clearly kind of a tenuous position to take? I personally, and I have no inside knowledge of this, is they are setting themselves up to be able to defend against a massive fine and lawsuits, and they want to be able to point back at PCI and the PCI Council. I think that's what they're doing here. They're setting the stage to say, hey, we followed best practices as dictated by BCI. You got a beef with that? Go talk to the BCI council. I don't know if that's going to fly, but you know, you and I have been in a, around enough jargantuan companies to know a statement like that doesn't get e- issued, especially an email, without a very well-thought-out strategy behind that statement. Yeah, and I guess that was where I was where it's coming from, and I, you know, I hadn't considered your what you just said. That that makes a lot of sense because you know I do think that most things that are said publicly, unless they're kind of off the cuff interviews, which I don't think this was, they are very well thought out and very well vetted, and that was why I was kind of surprised to see this. So I think you're probably right about that. Um, but you know, there there have been a number, I would say a a glut of articles by other magazines and in, uh, you know, security blogs and whatnot in the wake of this um, that talk about how companies are, are pretty bad at paying attention to their security tools like FireEye. And, you know, this is, this is uh, obviously a situation where something really bad happened, but this is a very common circumstance that happens a lot and, and I, I think that's the absolute key takeaway this isn't a you know pound on target um discussion it's a this is a common problem and a lot of people buy blinky boxes or you know boxes with blinky lights but you have to manage them appropriately to right. leverage the value yeah exactly especially if you're going to make s- some really significant investment like that uh, you know, and uh, admittedly, there's a lot of context that we don't have. You know, we're, we're, was was this FireEye thing spewing all sorts of false positives? And at some point, the the you know the response team in Minneapolis said, you know what, we we've we've chased down a hundred of these things, and they've all been false positives. Here comes two more. It's possible. I will tell you, in my personal experience, I don't find FireEye to be heavy in false positives. Um, what I do know about FireEye, and this in no way is, uh, you know, anything confidential about Target. It's just my personal experience without being in the Target environment. If you find a true zero day, a true unknown, never seen before, not correlated with anything else seen by it, 
the alerts you get out of FireEye are fairly vague, although you know it's obviously a piece of malware, but the naming and the information about that malware, it can't be correlated with anything else yet. So all you have is a generic piece of malware with the tracing of what it's done in the sandbox. Um, and sometimes it can look underwhelming, but that's a misunderstanding of the output of the code. Those are the ones that are actually most interesting because they've never been seen before and could truly be a truly targeted attack. Yeah. Um, you know, but what this also leads me to to want to talk about a little bit in this is how often are these companies testing this sort of process? You know, in an interest of full disclosure, one of the things that the company I work for does is we um, can craft fake zero days that should trigger like a real zero day was. And so it's kind of like a phishing exercise or, or a, you know, a, a targeted pen test, but specifically for testing malware sort of, you know, response. And I think it's a great idea, not just because I work for a company that does it, but if you're not testing your people in process, you have no idea if your technology is actually working for you. Yeah, or, or if the process behind the technology, in this case, the technology appears right. like it did work, it was the process that failed. Absolutely. And that is common. Sadly, too common. So, you know, I'm a big believer in if you've got this investment and you care about this stuff, you probably should be doing some sort of testing. I'm not saying go, a, you know, spend a lot of money on the outsider, but it's not a bad way to go if you can afford it in the budget, first off. To, to hire a company to do simulated attacks without telling your response team and see how they do. It's the only way to really know um, if they're responding appropriately. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say the only way, but it's a good way. Now, the other, the other uh, thing I picked up in here is that apparently this wasn't as novel and obscure of a piece of malware as you know we may have assumed it was. There's a reference in here, although it's kind of subtle, that that semantic endpoint protection even was picking up some activity from it. Which is interesting, because that's contradictory to what we heard earlier. Yeah, it is. Which VirusTotal blanked on this stuff. So I'm looking forward to the exposed tell-all book in, <laughs> you know, in the future. Yeah, I was trying to find the, the exact quote, but uh, it's not... It's not that's coming why, to me right now. That's why some of us make notes before the show. Well, I made a note to say that it was... God damn it. Anyway. <laughs> let's move on. Before as as he finds a new co-host, I'm so off this show. <laughs> Moving on. We have a... Uh, we've got an, a blog post. I guess it's really more of a report by Securosis called Leveraging Threat Intelligence in Security Monitoring. And, you know, this is a, it's a pretty long document. It's 22 pages long. I, I thought it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good read because it, it really talks about how you take the different kinds of threat intelligence feeds that are available to you. And, you know, things like, Lists of compromised devices, which, by the way, you know that's that there are there are public uh, or I guess commercial providers of of um, you know lists of, of compromised systems. So you could you you can find out if your if something in your environment is you know sh showing up in a you know a database of compromised systems or or, or 
registered with a command and control host or, or what have you. Um, and then uh, you know they they talk about malware indicators, which I think are what a lot of people think about when they think about threat intelligence. Uh, and then reputation systems, which are you know the RBLs and whatnot, and then uh, command and control traffic. Uh, and then uh, you know they, they they talk a lot about the specifics of how to integrate that into your environment. And you know again it's a 22 page article. I'm not going to go into it a ton of detail, but they describe integrating the data into your environment, how to update your rules, alerts, and reports, and then uh, the need to triage and validate what you're what you're getting. And they they had actually something in here which I thought was pretty neat. I didn't really make a note about it, but uh, they made some recommendations on how to test the effectiveness or, or basically kind of gauge the value you're getting out of your um, your threat feed. So that was a pretty good idea. Yeah, and just a little background on, you know, Securosis. Uh, really good stuff. If you're not following their blog, you're missing out on some of the best free high-end analysis and knowledge in the InfoSec world right now. These guys are just pure you know, hardened, experienced guys who are just doing a lot of research and no, and, and they release a lot of it free. It's usually being paid for by somebody, but they try to be extremely non-biased and it's really great stuff. I, I can't say more, you know, about that and I'm not just shilling for a job with them. It's, it's actually really good. Um, the one thing they say in here that I really like and they actually call this out is, you know, uh, this is a quote. Though to be clear, you cannot actually get ahead of the threats without a time machine, regardless <laughs> of what vendors tell you. <laughs> oh, that one hurt, by the way, when I read yes, that. Yes, yes. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, <laughs> the threat already exists, but wouldn't it be great to know about it before it's used against you? Now, agreed, but this is starting to sound so similar to the good old days of antivirus stat file updates. Right. Yeah. We we caught it someplace else first. So this is my you know concern at the end of the day about threat intelligence is you're still somewhat relying on somebody else having been popped first. So if you are patient zero, false sense of security. Yeah that that's a that's a really good point about the 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 whole you know the whole threat intelligence shebang is is that it it does really rely on lots of people kind of subscribing and you not being the first because otherwise it's not a it's you know if you if you have a threat intelligence provider that has four customers you know you're probably not getting a lot of <laughs> a lot of value out of it um so so you know it's there, there's another another actually i think the next uh next article is also about threat intelligence from Cryptia and it's this uh, Cryptia's WordPress blog and you know it's it's um he does interesting stuff but it's uh, you know I'm not sure if English is not his first language or or what but it's a little bit tough to read but the net of of what he was saying is that threat intelligence kind of suffers the problem that it is largely not actionable. You know, it's it's um, a, a lot of these threat intelligence vendors kind of, for lack of, I'm paraphrasing, right, but kind of stuff it full of crap <laughs> to, to make it look good, you know, and, and a lot of the stuff that 
is, is thrown in is not relevant to you. And yeah, you know, this is always the thing he's kind of been noodling in the back of my head is, what are you really going to do with this info? Does it really change much? Is this, you know, a reaction to executives saying, well, who are they and, and what are they doing? What sort of attribution can we get, you know, around this? They don't use that word, but that's what it really comes down to. Um, you know, I, I think indicators of compromise is useful. Uh, you know, if you've got the means to sort of absorb it, and and actually spot it, but it's interesting. I don't know. My, for me, the jury's still kind of out on the value of threat intelligence, and it's you know it is sort of a developing early cycle for that particular phrase anyway. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, you know, I think it's 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 one of those things that. I guess it's probably like antivirus. I think antivirus is, is probably a good analogy in that you know if you it's hard to it's hard to disagree or it's hard, it's hard to dispute that it is useful, right? Because it you know there's lots of stuff that it can catch, and so you may as well leverage it to catch what it can catch. Uh, but but we shouldn't be lulled into a, a, a false sense of security thinking that, you know, it's because we've subscribed to, you know, the CrowdStrike or the Mandiant threat feed that, you know, we're we're, uh, we're going to know all of the crap that's going to be thrown at us. Yeah. Because it's just not the case. Somebody's always the first person or, or the second or the third. Uh, and, you know, if it's you, I hope, hope you have other stuff in place. <laughs> <laughs> ah, anyhow, on to more happiness. So the next uh, next story we have going back to Securosis is a um, it, it's a it's less of a report, more of kind of a a, a post called Advanced Endpoint Pro- Sorry, Advanced Endpoint and Server Protection Quick Wins, and um, it. it doesn't read uh, the title doesn't do justice to what this actually is it's kind of a uh, so you're saying they're lying in their title um i I, if anything they're kind of um you know under you know downplaying this this article right because it's pretty good it describes some really common attack avenues and if you were to do kind of assuming that you were to do everything right uh how you you know how you should react right so so the kind of from the beginning of the stage of the attack beginning stages of the attacks where your you know uh, administrative assistants get fished all the way through the the point where you are doing a postmortem and and um, you know lessons learned on your response process and kind of everything in the middle about you know at what point do you determine that you are in fact being targeted versus some some kind of amalgamation of coincidental uh, malware attacks. So, I, I thought it's it's a it's a good read, especially the the I would say the second half is is more interesting than the first half because I think it's more um, more actionable to companies and and uh, you can you can. In my mind, at least, you can gain some uh, some benefit to your own process and and how you feedback 
uh, your incident process into your controls and, and whatnot. So good read. Really liked yep. it. Yeah, it's good stuff. And it's, it's relatively short, unlike yeah. your usual big reports, which are also good, but this one's a little more digestible. Absolutely. All right, the next story we have comes from our normal source for everything, <laughs> which is Network World. What can I say? They post a lot of good stuff. It's, it, it hits my RSS feed a lot. I, the, I don't. I, again, not not in any way sponsored by them. Not that we're opposed, but the title here is "CIOs Battle Worker Apathy Towards Lost or Stolen Mobile Phones," mm. and and the the article is really enumerating the details of a survey that was conducted by a company called Absolute Software. And what are they selling? Because um, you always got to know if they're the ones running the survey. Yeah, I, I don't know. All right. I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's as, it, it, I'm sure it has something to do with lost or stolen, protecting <laughs> against data loss on <laughs> stolen mobile devices. I, you know, I, I guess I've gotten, I've, I've grown so cynical when I see a report like that. I just automatically assume that's what they're... I mean, why else would you c- come up with a report? Why w- Why else would you fund a report like that? Well, and it, true enough, uh, Absolute Software does have a product called Absolute Manage for mobile device management. Right, there you go. allows you to remotely manage the iOS, Android, and Windows phone devices in your deployment. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, I... I Anytime, I guess that's it's good. It's a good thing to keep in mind. Anytime you read any of these these um, surveys, right? They're always going to be pub- They're always going to be almost always going to be backed by a company who has some kind of horse in the race. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the survey results are invalid. Correct. And, and so that was that's why I I wanted to talk about this because I do. Given my own experience, I think this the results of the survey, you know, seem in in sync with reality, but they're kind of yeah. disturbing. I would agree. I, yeah, I would agree. The findings are absolutely correct, um, regardless of us making fun of the fact that it's sponsored by somebody. But um, yeah, so uh, so the survey finds that twenty five percent of the respondents say that lost data if. If data that's lost as a result of them losing their phone is not their problem. Now that's that's not great. Uh, they find that uh, when when someone or when one of these people had lost their phones, thirty four percent were not punished in any way. Uh, only thirty percent had to replace the device that was stolen. Twenty one percent got a talking to. <laughs> That was funny. <laughs> and that's that's in quotes that talking. Is, that to. is in quotes. Thirty-three <laughs> uh, percent did not change their security habits as a result of losing their their device. Uh, Fifty. This this was probably the most interesting one to me. Fifty-nine percent, which is you know well over half, valued the data on their phone at less than five hundred dollars. The corporate data. The corporate data. Right. Yeah. And you know, for for the most part, that's you know, most phones these days are worth more than five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, that's that's not a great place for us uh, when when people don't really understand the value of what they're carrying around in their pocket. Twenty five percent 
of respondents did not know how to report a lost or stolen device. So, so basically, you know, the first part of the article was kind of dinging, dinging the stupid user, and now we move into the dinging the CIO and why it's their fault. Um, they did, the, I guess they did uh, survey, and I don't think this is very scientific, but uh, they got some anecdotes that CIOs say that, quote, lots of employees will wait for weeks before reporting a device is lost or stolen because they're trying to find it in an effort to not have their personal photos or email or what have you wiped off the phone once they uh, once they report it stolen. So that's kind of depressing. So what can we do? You know, I, obviously one one is make it relatively easy to report to report your phone as, as stolen. Is that Number an education? One. I mean, part of that is user education. Part of that's education. Part of it's making sure that it's, you know, that, that it's accessible. Is, you know, is it on your internet? Is it able, is it easy to find? If they call your help desk, can they report it lost or stolen? Um, you know, make it, make it relatively easy. If you make it painful, no one's going to do it. Can you put the MDM genie back in the bottle? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, you know, and and I know you've said this a bunch, and I and I'm I'm really coming around to this way of thinking too. That at some point, I suspect there's probably going to be a BYOD backlash. You know, where yeah. where this problem may end up solving itself, but you know, is that is that five years away or ten? You know, who knows? But yeah, I agree. This so, problem so- is here. Something big is going to happen. Somebody's going to lose a whole lot of money. Somebody's business is going to be put in massive peril because we're just too lackadaisical about it right now. We, the risk is just too high. Now, I don't know if that's going to, you know, come around as businesses realize the risk is too high, so they start putting more onerous MDM tools on personal devices, and individual users go, "Get off my phone." Oh, I don't know. It's Gonna get interesting. I, I, I don't think that this is at a level yet. I think it's still sort of pendulum swinging back and forth, and we're not done with this as a cultural thing. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, definitely agree with sure. that. But. I'm just not sure if it's going to start at the at the you know individual user side or at the corporate side, but we'll see. I, I think whatever it is, it's got a while to ride before anything happens. I just yeah. I just don't see a lot you know there just isn't the burning platform for change right now and um it, you know it this is a this is a really significant problem but it really shouldn't be because the there's everybody and their dog has a freaking MDM setup now you know it this is not this is not hard it's it's quite well, within I do think MDM, in general, from a software setup, is a little immature, though. I still think it's in, you know, it, it could grow a little. Not saying that it's not useful now, but I've not been overly impressed with the maturity of a lot of the MDM vendors I've seen in terms of their offering. You know what I think is really going to do it, the right way to do it, is a virtualization within the OS, 
where you've got a corporate profile and a, and a personal profile and never the two shall meet. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. That's, I, that's, you know, that's where I think we have to get to if this is going to continue on because, you know, at some point, again, whether it's sooner or later, people are going to not like the concept of companies having access to their, to their personal information. Uh-huh. And, and whether that's snooping on them or whether that's wiping it if, you know, they, they, you know, they misplaced it in the wrong drawers or, or something. Or, you know, they quit or get fired or whatever. Good point, too. Yes. That's you a, know, it's... We'll see. Absolutely. All right. We beat that one to death. Next one is is really interesting to me. This is a story from CSO Online. The title is Navy Network Hack Has Valuable Lessons for Companies. And the net of this is that the Navy had a couple of database servers that were were part of a large infrastructure that apparently they thought they had outsourced to HP. However, uh, it, uh, apparently it comes to be that for for whatever reason, those database servers were not actually part of the scope of the agreement they had with HP, and so... HP kind of ignored them. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Iran, Iranian hackers, of course, got in there and did what Iranian hackers do and caused about $10 million in damages. So, I, you know, I talked to Bob about this one because Bob has some friends who work for really large IT outsourcing companies. Iranians? Uh, No, no. No, no, no. IT outsourcing companies. And um, this is a really common problem. Uh, at least that's what his, his friends tell him. That, that um, you know, that throughout the article, uh, they consult with different experts uh, about how to avoid this problem. And they recommend making network maps and, and um, you know, traceability matrices and things like that. But... At the end of the day, what Bob tells me is that a lot of customers don't know what the heck they have. Yeah. And so if you get a network map that's not complete, you still aren't going to have the right stuff. And one of the other one of the other points in here is uh, I don't remember exactly who said it, but that um you know, you need to make sure in your contract that you just say that whether or not something is explicitly called out that it is in the scope of things to be managed. And here's the here's the problem with IT outsourcing. It's a commodity business, right? It is it is a very very low margin business and companies these outsourcing companies are not going to be signing at least from what Bob tells me are not going to be signing up to to take on something like that. So you know, if you are a company who is going to be outsourcing your IT to somebody, you really need to know what's in your environment. It's it's critically important. Otherwise, you're going to end up like this. Yep. So, and you know, you can't really blame HP too much if they did what the contract said they were supposed to do. 
Absolutely, absolutely. That's that was what Bob told me. Yeah, and it's it's a tough it's a tough problem. You know, how much liability are you willing to take on in in an active adversarial environment? Right. You know, this isn't like right. a, a, a negligence and defects kind of thing. Uh, there's a term that I'm suddenly forgetting, um, a legal term for it. I mean, this is, you know, this is like if you're a car manufacturer, you're being held accountable to how the car survives when people are actively trying to crash into you with a semi-truck. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, it's not that bad, but it's along those lines. It's... It's not that vendors are not without responsibility, but at the same time, we have to keep in mind that these are active adversaries out there doing anything they can. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, I I can't stress this enough. And I think this goes, it's not just IT outsourcing, it's anything, right? You, and I know you mentioned it earlier in this podcast, in fact, if you're going to outsource something, whether it's your entire IT infrastructure or security or you know something, you really need a plan to test its effectiveness, to to find blind spots like this before you know before something sneaks up on you. Because especially in a large in a large company or organization like the Navy, I'm, I had no idea how many systems they had in their outsourcing agreement. I would imagine it's quite a few. It's probably relatively easy to yeah. miss a few. Um, but you know that you, sh- if you are someone in the Navy responsible for this outsourcing, uh, suddenly I have a picture of those big bell bottoms and a hat for some reason. I don't know. Um, y- you really need to figure out how you're going to test the effectiveness of uh, of this and and figure out sooner rather than later than holy cow these these servers over here are not in the scope and you need to you know to work on some kind of uh, contract modification to get those put back in the scope because you know otherwise this this is the 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 result is is kind of preordained all right the last the last news story we have uh, tonight comes from forbes and the title is how the Syrian Electronic Army hacked us: a detailed timeline. This is uh, this is another example uh, of a company or organization who has been hacked by the Syrian Electronic Army, kind of doing a full disclosure analysis. I think it was um, the Onion did one last yeah. year, and yep. and it was this this one reads very similarly to the Onions, although you know, slightly different that. The net is that a executive, I think it was a company executive, not a producer, but a senior executive received an email and she looked at it really early, of course, you know, she hadn't had her coffee yet. So who could blame her for clicking on the email? And when it prompted her for her webmail credentials, she, of course, capitulated and and entered them and, and, um, you know, they now the Syrian Electronic Army was off to the races. She um, she was totally in the dark, didn't know what was going on, got into her car and drove to the office. And, and while she was apparently in the car, all sorts of hell broke loose because the Syrian Electronic Army used her email account to in turn email other people under her 
her ID with um, with more phishing emails, and one of those went to a uh, editorial staffer who had administrative access on their WordPress blog. And what ensued was, I think, two days of just pandemonium. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, the Forbes, the Forbes IT guys, you know, you, you have to put yourself into into the you know the mind of people who are running around trying to you know number one keep the keep the SCA out of your network but number two also keep you know keep the lights on and, and your site available uh, it, it's probably pretty difficult but you know they um, on several occasions they locked everybody out they changed all the passwords they verbally transferred passwords rather than sending them an email because, well, that was a, a very astute thing to do because, you know, they, they knew the SEA had access to some email accounts. But even after that, they once they finished, uh, was not long after their site got defaced again. And that, that time it turned out to be because... Um, well, one of the email accounts was still compromised, and so they did a, pa- a forgot password <laughs> reset from WordPress, and uh, you know was able to reset the password again, and and then uh, you know they so they did another big reset, and yet again they got in, and this time it was <laughs> expect it was uh, believed that they uh, they leveraged some linkage between WordPress and these people's uh, uh, social media accounts. To, to get in and uh, so they you know again they cleaned it all up and yet again it got hacked <laughs> it and, seems like a bit of a groundhog day and I from from what I could tell they, they they're not really exactly sure how the last time happened they you know they I think they have a couple of theories but no no real firm idea but you know uh, this this is uh <sighs> This, in my mind, shows some of the really significant problems we have with phishing emails because, and I face this a lot with with my constituency. Uh, obviously, phishing emails are really are becoming very difficult to to tell, especially if you're being spearfished, right? Because they're you know they're 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 very believable. They have the right context and things like that. But even if you do, you know, somebody's going to fall for it. Somebody's going to be not fully awake yet or, you know, have have worked for 28 hours in a row and not be in the top of their game. Somebody's going to fall for it. And once that happens, now it's, you know, now it's uh it's not necessarily a spearfish that's going to come from the outside. The next round is going to be almost impossible to tell because it's coming from an actual inside account. And that's in my mind that's like that's the really devastating segment yeah. of the attack. Is you know that's that's uh, the kill shot right there. Well, I think in many ways you know, I think one of one of the things they could have done is had more widely deployed use of two-factor authentication. You know, because at at, at most it limits the the attacker to one man in the middle off. Yeah. Um, now, once they've got it, they could potentially alter the you know, the authentication mechanism and such. But I don't know. It's it's a tough call. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about... And I don't mean by two-factor the, oh, you, you're coming from a new computer. Would you like us to authorize this computer? We'll send you a code in your email that you've already, you know, got yes. compromised, right? Yes. No, I'm talking about something like a secure ID token that rolls a code every 60 seconds. Right. Right. The, the other thing I think that might have helped, again, I don't know a whole lot about their environment, but it, it, it sounds to me like their email system is publicly accessible. And, and that's, in my mind, probably a pretty significant contributor because, you know, if someone can log into your email without, you know, without VPNing in, that's a, you know, that's, that's a kind of maybe not a great but, thing. But that's so common, especially when people want to get email on their phones. Nobody wants to put a VPN client on their phone. Well, I, I agree, but there are lots of other options, right? You know, there's reverse, there's authenticated reverse proxies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there are, there's there's lots of ways to solve that particular problem that don't, that don't leave you ex- exposed like this. The problem is that if you, you know, if you have your, you know, look, I know a lot of companies have, you know, OWA sitting out on the internet and yeah, that's, it, it, it hurts my brain when I think about how exposed you are because now all it does really take for someone to get into your organization is you know you're just a, a simple phishing email away you know where where someone can can uh, you know spoof your site they they can typo squat your domain and and now some you know now they've got login credentials to get into your email and uh, you know that it's just. I don't know. I hope, hopefully, uh, if you're one of those companies, you think think twice about that. I I, I think it's a very dangerous thing. Yep. All right. So the last the last thing I wanted to talk about, and we don't have a whole ton of time to talk about this, um, kind of briefly is someone someone approached me about this, and I thought it was worth talking about. So if if you are, let's say, an an IT person, a system administrator, security person, uh, or you work at a you know a hosting provider or something like that, and you, in the in the course of your na- your normal daily job, find evidence of criminal activity, whether that's internally or externally, you know the the activities coming from inside or outside, how do you react? What do you do? And this is a really tough, tough nut, right? Because, you know, the the old joke about lawyers goes, it depends. And, you know, I, I'll tell you uh, how I, you know, how I view it is, you, you know, number one is you don't want everyone to make the problem worse. Right. Right. And, and so, especially in, since you are acting as, the agent of a company, you really have a responsibility to first try to run it up your your management flagpole. And I know a lot of companies have, um, you know, a- attorneys and, and, and things like that. Certainly, you should try to go through your management, right? But, you know, there are cases where companies are kind of reticent, uh, you know, to engage law enforcement. And I'll tell you, 
I'll tell you, this is not a, a, an uncommon fear. A lot of law enforcement is viewed as kind of heavy-handed when it comes to investigating cybercrime, as it were. You know, whether that's coming in and seizing servers or, or even just taking over and running roughshod, uh, you know, in, in, in the organization and, and kind of disrupting things. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to me, at least to be, a lot of experience or a lot of good stories where where things have worked out really well between law enforcement and companies running an investigation. So I think I think uh, business management is sometimes kind of hesitant to to want to get involved, right? They would prefer to kind of sweep it under the rug. Let's let's just uh, let's just clean it up. But in different jurisdictions, that could potentially be contrary to the law. You know, in in different contexts, like for instance, if the thing that you were that you found were child pornography here in the states, you have a legal duty to report it to to the to the police. If you don't if you don't report it, you're actually to some extent. I'm not a lawyer, right? But you 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 are in some way culpable, and that's not a good thing. And so so you really need it. You really need to contact or, or consult with some kind of legal counsel, uh, you know, when you're faced with this kind of situation. In, in my view, and the other thing I would say is not to take things into your own hands. Yeah. Right. This is a this is a really important thing. You know, you, obviously you want to do what's right, and you you have to obviously you have to do what's what you believe is in your best interest and in, in what you can live with in your conscience. But you, I think you also have to, to be aware that you can dig a really deep hole for yourself in, in doing what you think is right. And so if uh-huh. you, you know, if you think that you are collecting evidence for, you know, for something that's going wrong or, or where people are not paying attention to you, you know, one thing you have to, you have to realize is that in most jurisdictions, there's very, very specific requirements about how evidence is collected and handled. And if those rules aren't followed to a T, uh, the, the defense can usually throw them out, you know, or, or get them, get them, uh, you know, at least some, in some way suppressed. So you, you've, you, you know, you might think you're doing something really good, but what could happen in the end is that your your activities are viewed as criminal in themselves. Uh-huh. And, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I don't even play one on TV. I have never stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> um, I, you know, all, all I can say is uh, you, you really have to talk to an attorney. Most companies have attorneys. If you don't feel like you're getting your, you know, your... Uh, your message through on on a particular topic like this, I think that the company's attorney is probably uh, the the place to go because you know you, you, I, I just think it's very perilous for a person to take things on on themselves. So keep that in mind. Yeah, and, I completely agree. The only thing I would add to that is it's probably something you want to have worked out before an incident occurs. Yeah, and if you can figure out your response plan before you're in the middle of one, you'll be better off. Absolutely, you can't anticipate every scenario, but try to anticipate the common ones and have a signed-off plan 
you know, signed off by council and executive management before you're in the middle of something. Yeah, and, and, and in particular, if you you know if you have had a if you have had a situation like this, you know, it might it, this is a this is a good opportunity to take it to your management and say, look, you know, let's let's figure that out. I mean, that's a that's a really good point that you brought up. Let's you know we maybe that one didn't go very well. Let's figure out what we're going to do different next time. Yeah. So, anyhow, I think that is a wrap for another week. Uh, as usual, we appreciate you uh, you listening. And you can find the show notes, which include links to all the stories that we talked about, uh, on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow uh, the site or the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, I bid you adieu for another week. Have a good night. Thanks, guys. Take care. <laughs>